Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. But we are in week two of our series called Screens. Everybody say screens. We're going to use social media today as a starting point. If you're not on it, so if you're not on a social media outlet, these, this message and these next three really uh, will speak to you. But I wanted to say up front, because sometimes we can think the opposite, that I wanted to say that I absolutely love and I absolutely embrace the value of social media. I am on several different forms, and we all know who use it, that there are so many incredible benefits of social media. Uh, I think of what Paul would have done in leveraging social media for the gospel. I think of what great missionaries would have done in leveraging social media for the gospel. You can connect with people all over the world, right? It really makes a big world so much smaller. You can promote things that are important to you. You can push causes forward. There are so many benefits At the same time, with all of the great opportunities that technology provides, there are also some what we would call unintended downsides, or we could say unintended negative consequences of social media, of different forms of technology, of different forms of screens. What I want to do today is I want to raise a few of those issues. I want to contrast some of those struggles with biblical values, and I believe this is going to be a a, a real powerful message that will speak to the hearts of so many people today. So let me tell you what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about contentment. We're going to talk about contentment. I've entitled today's message, Gospel Ethics for Screens. Gospel Ethics for Screens. We're going to look at a problem that when we compare our lives with other people's lives, we become dissatisfied and we become discontented in our own hearts. Now, so many things we could talk about. As I began to think critically about this series and, okay, God, what would you have me share? I I started thinking we could talk about intimacy. See, because in today's social media world, when we post something on Instagram or we post something on Snapchat or on Facebook, we get immediate feedback and therefore we can, in that moment, feel close to people. But as we really know, social media, what it does is it gives us the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. So you don't have to have any biblical demands of relating to that person. You only can feel some kind of false fallacy of connection, if you will. And so we can be very comfortable relating to people online. But many of us, we're longing for something more face-to-face. Or we get behind our screens and behind our thumbs and we get really bold in how we interact with others. But then we don't say those type of things when we get in person-to-person encounters. I started thinking, okay, we could talk about authenticity because really for the first time in history, we can filter everything we show people. There's a filter for anything that we want to put in front of other people. We can self-edit what we're going to say. And the more filtered our lives are, the more difficult it is for us to be authentic. So I thought we could talk about that. And then I thought, you know, we could also talk about compassion. 
Studies show that over the last 20 years, we actually care considerably less about other people. This has been true year after year in American society. And these studies argue that technology so overwhelms us with all the information in the world that we simply feel like we cannot care anymore. Psychologists have called this compassion fatigue, and yet God calls us to be compassionate. So we could talk about how do we minister to one another in a selfie-centered world. How do we do that? How do we have authenticity? How do we have compassion? Then I thought, you know what? We could talk about rest. That's what we could do when we talk about screens because I tell you, I am so tethered to this stupid little thing, right, that's in my pocket at all times. It is absolutely ridiculous how tethered I am to this. I don't sleep with my phone, which, by the way, like 89% of teenagers do now. They sleep with it right next to their head. Okay, that's American stats. I don't sleep with it, but I'm pretty close because I have woken up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and checked it before I fell back asleep. I've done that before. I've opened up the phone and checked it in the middle of a 3.30 hour, if you know what I'm saying, right? And so I thought, well, we could talk about rest. But today in screens, I want to jump into talking about discontentment and envy and how we become content in Christ. Some people believe that discontentment has never been a bigger problem in the history of the world than it is today. Think about it. Never before have people in the Western world had so much and yet wanted so much more. Never have we had so much available to us and yet desiring something else. Some sociologists are actually saying that social media is one of the biggest driving causes of discontentment because what happens is when we look at other people's lives on social media, right, they look perfect. They're putting up their best image, their filtered image forward for everybody else. As many people have said, we're comparing our behind-the-scenes reels with everybody else's highlight reels. You want to know why everybody's so insecure? Because you're comparing your your behind-the-scenes life with everybody else's highlight life. You're You're comparing what you know to be true really about you with everybody else's highlight reel. And as a result, we feel like losers because we see the best of their best and we see the worst of our worst. We deal with the worst of our worst. For example, I heard about just not long ago, two moms talking about how they had hated each other on social media. One was a working mom, and she was like, I just hated you because you're the perfect Pinterest stay-at-home mom who does crafts, and you have so much structure for your kids, and you just always make me feel so guilty. And the stay-at-home mom said to the working mom, well, you know what? I hated you because you have a life, and you're out in public, and you're doing things, and I haven't had my hair in anything but a ponytail, nor I have seen adults since 2008, you know? And, and, and so both of these women, two people comparing and longing for what the other person has. Maybe you've been like this. You're at home all by yourself and you see out your friend out on a date eating lobster and you're eating lean cuisine and you don't even like lean cuisine. You would rather have Hungry Man to be honest. Or you see your friend at the gym, right? And he's doing selfie muscle pictures and you're single-handedly trying to get Hostess and Little Little Debbie out of bankruptcy by the amount of ho-hos and Swiss cake rolls you've been eating, right? I mean, and so in that moment, you're like, I feel so bad about myself. Man, what is wrong with me? And never before in the history of the world could we so accurately measure popularity. 
You couldn't accurately measure popularity like that even in my generation. When I was a kid, we had to kind of just randomly guess when we weren't popular or when we were popular. Like now, yeah, I'm not so popular, I don't really think, but now you can measure it. Well, I've got 287 followers and she's got 492. I'm half as popular as she is in this area. Or my picture only got 19 likes and the other one before that had 12 and my record is 33 and, and every time she posts, she gets three digits of likes and it's just not fair. How in the world did she get to 10,000? How in the world did Instagram give her the ability to swipe up on the stories and get the link at the bottom right and nobody else gave me that like what 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 is and so we we compare and we summarize everybody else's life is so much better and my life just simply is terrible and what happens is the more we compare ourselves with others the less satisfied we are in fact researchers did a study at two college universities and they had students spend an hour uh, on Facebook, and they surveyed their feelings after an hour of just looking on Facebook, just scrolling. And what they found is that one-third of the students felt significantly depressed, citing envy as the number one emotion when they felt, or what they felt, after just, again, 60 minutes of watching what happens on Facebook. So what we're talking about today is a real issue, isn't it? It's a real issue. And what I want to do today is I want to be very, very honest and expose any discontentment we have in our hearts so I want to dive in today, and I want all of us to dive into three different categories of discontentment. And then I want you to be gut-level honest about any of these areas that you struggle with. And we'll broaden it, and we're going to broaden it beyond social media, obviously. But, but for those of you who use social media like I do, you'll probably see yourself at least in one of these three areas. First, let's talk about the first area of discontentment. That is what we call material or financial discontentment material or financial discontentment, right? Maybe you see him post a picture of his car and you're, you hate your car. You want to be happy for him, but you're jealous because you want that car. She posts a picture of brownies, but you're not looking at her brownies. You're looking beyond her brownies at her kitchen cabinets. And you're looking beyond her brownies at what kind of stovetop or range she has and what kind of bar she has and whether or not she has shiplap or she doesn't have shiplap. And, and you find yourself studying behind the picture what happens and her little cabinet, little pull knobs that she has in her perfect little kitchen, right? It's brownies. And you're like, I wish I had that. Or it could be that your friend, if they live in Cherokee County, is at the beach again for the 17th time this year. You can't even go to Lake Blue Ridge, okay? You barely make it to Alatoona. You don't even have enough gas to get over to Alatoona. And they're now on their 17th beat trip, right? And you're very, or, or maybe, maybe she has more shoes than Zappos.com. And you're like, I got my three pairs. And you know, whatever I can do to keep the scuffs off of these. And it makes you materially or it makes you financially at some level discontented. Would you be real honest today? Let's just start and say, if this has ever been an issue for you, just raise your hand. Call it what it is. No need to lie. No need to lie in the house of God. Material or financial discontentment. Yes. Let's talk about the second one. Relational discontentment. Relational discontentment. You see all your friends, they're together and you're not, and you weren't invited. Pastor met with them for lunch, didn't meet with me for lunch. Didn't connect with me in that moment that they connected with them. Didn't respond to me in the way he responded to another. Or... You weren't invited, or why was I left out again, or why am I never invited to these events, or you're not married, and every person you know is married, and they're happy, and you're not. I wish that I had somebody special. You see someone else, and they have time with their children, and you're working your tail off. You're doing 60 hours a week, and you're just trying to make ends meet for your children. And maybe you don't feel the feelings towards your children, but maybe you feel guilty personally, feel guilty as a father, or feel guilty as a mother. 
You see the relational intimacy that other people have and you don't have all that you would want. They look like they've got a great marriage. You don't feel like you got a great marriage and all of a sudden you find yourself in one form of another a little bit envious of someone else's relational status. If that's you, let's be real honest today. If you've ever felt relational discontentment or envy, yes, yes. The third one is what I'm just going to call circumstantial discontentment. You're looking at your life, you're comparing your life to everyone else's and you're thinking, I wish I was where they were. By this point in my life, I, I wish I, I thought I'd be doing something more significant, right? I wish I could have a baby, or I wish I could have this house, or I wish I could, you know, that, there's the 14th reveal party this month, and they're showing the sex of their baby, and I can't even have a baby. You know, or I've had three miscarriages, or I have major infertility issues, and I wish I just had a more significant life, or whatever it is. And quite honestly, for me, if I'm just being real honest, circumstantial in, in days past is what has tripped me up. Right? Because I, as a pastor, especially going into ministry, we work all weekend long, right? We don't, we don't have the normal schedule that everybody has. So Saturdays and Sundays are really long. I oftentimes don't get on social media as much. And then everybody else, you're showing pictures like I'm at the football game and I'm at the lake. And I'm like, fine, I'll serve God. You serve the devil. It's fine. I'll just keep doing what I do. And I'll just keep trying to win people for Jesus. You keep on vacationing, okay? Do your significant thing on the weekend. And, and so, so you can understand that. That's what happens in life. And so just being real honest, right? We have these, these ignitions, if you will. It ignites this type of discontentment in our life. So I want to say to us today, I believe, unlike what maybe culture tells us, I think the biblical response is that life is probably about 10% of what happens to you and about 90% of how you respond. It's not about 90% of what happens to you and then 10% of how you respond. The reality is, for most of us, though, we are the flip side of that. Most of us live as if 90% of what happens to us, and we don't really have much power in our response. We feel victimized in some sense. With the Apostle Paul, as we get now into our main text, was the master of responding with a Christ-like perspective. In fact, we're going to look at, to me, what is the best verse in all of Scripture at contentment. And he's writing this. You need to understand where Paul is at right now. He's writing while in prison, under house arrest, where he is chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. That's the type of freedom he has. Are you with me? Let me put it this way. He's not on the beach drinking a little drink with an umbrella in it, okay? Life is not great for him as he writes this. And here's what he says, Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, verse 13. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Notice that. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And he says, I've learned the, what does it say, church? I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. In other words, if life is going the way I want it, or if life is not going the way I want it at all, I know the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. You want to know the secret? You want to know it? Here's the secret sauce. Here's the secret of being content in every situation. He says, I can do all things through whom? Say it with me. I can all do all things through who? Christ, who does what? Christ, who gives me strength. I can do anything and I can do everything through Christ, who gives me strength. The secret of contentment is not found in what I have or what I do not have. The secret of contentment is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And what that means for us, until Christ is all you have, you'll never recognize that Christ is all you need. And so what happens in life is that we, 
get put through tests and trials and difficulties and challenges to, to get us to a place to realize Christ is all we actually need. You want the secret of contentment, the power of contentment? Then you let everything else in your life be stripped away and you cling to the Savior. You cling to the Son of God and in that moment you recognize His presence is real, that encounters with Him are real, and that He offers a peace that goes beyond our human ability to comprehend it and that He's our rock, He is our Savior, He is our sustainer, He is our redeemer, He is our peace that covers our minds, He is our assurance, He is everything that you and I would ever need. That is the secret of contentment. Now, it just makes it a little bit harder to get to that point in our culture because you can search and search and search and search and get all the likes you want. You can get all the approval from people you want. You can get all the material things you want. You can know and love as many people as you can find, but until you experience the goodness of Christ, you'll always be dissatisfied. In some way, you'll always be discontented. You'll always be looking for something more because within you is a Christ-shaped void. You know the great philosopher Blaise Pascal called it the God-shaped hole, right? We have this God-shaped hole. You were born for eternity. I was born for eternity. And there's a longing for something more than this world has to offer. And until you let Christ, until I let Christ be all that I need, I'll always battle with the enemy of discontentment and envy will rule in my heart. It will rule. It will seep into parts of my life. Paul says, I'll tell you the secret of being content. Hey, I can have a lot. I can have little. I can be in Roman prison. I can be free. But by Christ, I can do everything Christ calls me to do. That's the secret of being content. So what I want to do, I want to talk about three things that we absolutely and completely need Christ's strength to do. What do we need? Through Christ, Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What do we absolutely need the strength of Christ to do as it relates to envy and discontentment in our heart when we engage screens? Through the strength of Christ, number one, we will stop comparing. Through Christ's strength, we will stop comparing. We'll stop comparing. Paul said this, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. He said, we do not dare... Watch this. We don't dare. Remember that old truth or dare game? This is, we don't dare. Listen to this language. We don't dare. We're not even going to get close to this. We're not trying to get up close. See how close we can get. To classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. Just post that on your, your Facebook today. Put, you know, whatever. Right? I mean, they can think about that scripture. We don't dare even get close to classifying or comparing ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. They're not wise, Paul says. Listen, there is no win in comparisons. There's no win. We're going to kill comparisons. Why? Because it's not wise. We're not going to do it. In fact, we're going to be tempted, but we're not going to do it. I remember many, many times, even in my own middle school years and high school years, where my had my own comparison stories, right? Where I got crushed by comparisons, particularly crushed by comparisons and not just athletic ability, but crushed by comparisons and desiring to date a girl, right? In ninth grade and then having a guy who's matured a whole lot quicker than I have. I could tell you story after story and you have story after story, right? I have in even being called to ministry, stepping into a role and, and then now comparing myself to all other pastors and leaders around me. And then some of you, you know, you, just like myself, you, you meet people that don't like you. They criticize you. And they know what's in your past. And, 
and they don't want to have mercy for you in your present or your future. And they don't realize you're overcoming some significant obstacles, right? And, and yet in that moment, if we just consistently compare ourselves, envy is going to continue to rise up in our hearts, right? And then we get on social media and have to do everything we can because social media has, in essence, trained us to enter into life situations with a premeditated narrative. Meaning we know what we're going to say before we get into that moment, so that moment's not real anymore. We now hijack that moment and everybody in that moment for our premeditated narrative, for whatever we want to say. So now we've got into performance mode to be actors everywhere we go. Now we now have to walk through our lives trying to act in a way that makes us you know, more comparable to the people that we compare ourselves with, right? And then we, you know, remember a few years ago, we used to like do run on hashtags, right? Hashtags were a big thing, right? And, and if, if you're new to hashtagging, by the way, you know, don't make your hashtags really long. Like we went to the zoo, hashtag we went to the zoo and saw the lions and tigers and bears and got popcorn. And it was so much fun that we came home and this hashtag is getting really long. So you ever see people like, remember in 2007, 2008, the hashtag got so, so long, right? It's not how you do them, okay? How many of you know somebody like that? I know my dad is like that, but his is just enough said. Dad, if you're watching, enough said. N-U-F-F-S-A-I-D, right? So, so we have our hashtags, but, but we, we, we're going to kill our comparisons. You say, why are we killing our comparisons? I'll tell you why. Look what James chapter 3, verse 14, 15, and 16 says. I want you to see how dangerous this is. He said, if you harbor bitter envy, okay, listen to me. Those of you who are envious, watch what this does. If you harbor, harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. James, by the way, is being a little bit sarcastic here, okay? He says, such wisdom, and that wisdom is in quotes, such wisdom does not come down from heaven. But where does it come? Let's say it aloud. What is it? It is earthly. It is what? It is unspiritual. What is it? It is demonic. It is earthly. It is unspiritual. It is demonic. Envy is demonic envy is demonic it is unspiritual he says verse 16 for where you have envy and selfish ambition there you find order notice this disorder and every evil practice why are we going to kill comparisons because they're demonic they open the door for the demonic by the way this is one of the top 10 commandments right thou shalt not covet well, you know why uh, the, the great reformer Martin Luther said that thou shalt not covenant was the 10th commandment? Because he said if you don't do that one, it will protect you from disobeying all the others. In other words, it's not just unhealthy, it is sinful in the eyes of God. So therefore we have to kill and we have to crush comparisons. Now I don't know how practically this will play out in your life. Some of you, you may need to take a social media break because it's feeding the sin of envy. And you need that break, right? Yeah, Absolutely. I do this occasionally for a multitude of reasons. I'll just take a week off of social media. Sometimes it's a few days. Sometimes it's three days. Sometimes I've done five days. But you know what? I'm just not going to engage in that time frame. Why? Because it's just certainly helpful to me. You may need to do so, right? You might need to hide the feed of certain people that trigger the sin of envy in your life. So don't keep doing it. Don't keep seeing it. Hide them, okay? Unfriend them, block them, do whatever you got to do, right? But, but be able to hide that Let's take it beyond social media for a moment. You may need to stop ordering certain catalogs that come to your home. You need to stop ordering those. Cancel the subscriptions that are always making you want something more. Or delete shopping apps on your phone. God, that is making envy a million times worse than even Instagram. 
the shopping apps. Now it's just, if you're an influencer, just hit it. Just, just one, one after the next. And you can just keep on buying and keep on buying and keep on buying. Or stop watching Home and Garden TV. Because all you can do is sin whenever you're watching somebody else's nice house. And looking at your pathetic little shack. And you're just, it's envy, right? Time it's, or not go to the boat show. For me, don't go to Cabela's. Dear God, if you want to show pastor appreciation, just let me go in there for a week. You know, like, that's where I want to be. The, the car show or the hunting show. or what, We got to kill comparisons. Why? Because envy is demonic. An evil practice comes from within. This lust and longing for something more comes from within. So we're, we're, not only are we going to kill comparisons in this way, but let me give you a second little helpful thing here. I also find that celebrating the successes of others really purifies my heart. Can I talk about that for a minute? Celebrating other people's successes. So when someone else is in a ble- oh, blessed in a way that I want to be blessed, whenever I learn to celebrate with them, it purifies the intentions of my own heart. Someone else gets the job you wanted. And that's not easy to do. It takes maturity. But you say, you know what? God must have had a reason to bless them, that he didn't have a reason to bless me that way. And with everything in me, I thank God for his blessings in their life. That's maturity. Someone else gets the things I've always wanted. God, continued to bless them. God, I thank you that your hand of blessing is upon that person. What does it do? It purifies your motives. Man, I wish I was going on vacation and my friend is skydiving off of a volcano in Iceland. You know, Thank you, God, that they're having a good time. And this is a big blessing to them. And they're able to have family time uninterrupted. Because I have found, listen church, that in my own heart, when I can't celebrate others, I actually think I'm limiting what God wants to do in my life. Hear me, hear me. When I actually can't celebrate others, I'm actually thinking that I am limiting what God wants to do in my life. I really do. I really do. So many different seasons of life and examples that I could share with you. I feel like in moments of those comparisons in past, God has spoken to me. And I'm real careful when I say this, but God has spoken to me one time, particularly praying and envious of another ministry, and God just said to me, would you really be happy if I blessed them and blessed them more than I was blessing you? I remember the Lord asked me that, and I thought, my answer wasn't really good, y'all. My answer was, nope, I would not be happy. Bless them a lot, but don't bless them nearly as much as you're blessing me. Right? Shower them, but don't shower them like you're going to shower me. And so that can be really dangerous as a pastor, right? Building your own kingdom and not God's kingdom. And so I deeply repented and said, God, I really want to be the place where I want you to bless other churches more than your blessing dwelling place. And when I can get to that place, when it really was more about the kingdom than suddenly about my kingdom, then guess what God will start to do? He'll start to bless you. Listen, God will not give you anything that you've turned into an idol while waiting to receive it. It's not coming. So if it's becoming an idol in the waiting, there will have to be purification before that is granted. I can't prove this. I I really can't. And this this may not be true for you, but let me just speak, and I want to give that disclaimer from my own heart. I live as if it were true. Perhaps the reason why God is not blessing you with something you want is because you're not celebrating God's blessing in someone else's life. That you're not able to celebrate with them and uplift them and celebrate what... I want to be careful and I want to celebrate His blessing in someone else's life. I never want it to be about me. You don't want it to be about you. And if you're not getting what you want, it could be because our heart's not right. Right? So we're going to kill comparisons and we're going to celebrate God's blessings in other people's lives. Here's the second thing we're going to do. Everybody say number two. If you're taking notes, first, we're going to kill comparisons. Number two, 
we're going to cultivate gratitude in our own lives. So we're, we will cultivate gratitude in our own lives. Really, really important, right? In fact, can I define envy for you? If you're taking notes, let me give you a definition of envy. I might jot it down. Envy is resenting God's goodness in other people's lives and ignoring God's goodness in my own life. That's envy. So it's resenting God's goodness in other people's lives and it's ignoring God's goodness in my own life. Envy is resenting God's goodness in other people and it's ignoring His goodness in my own life. So we have to cultivate gratitude. Let me read a proverb for you, 15 and 15. God, this is such a powerful verse. So powerful. Watch this. For the despondent, every day brings trouble. For the despondent, every day brings trouble. Some of you, you know people like this. Some of you, you are people like this. Oh, it's a bad day. Oh, it's going to rain today. Oh, it's going to be a horrible day. Oh, Delta variant is worse than the other variant. Oh, it's going to be horrible. Oh, the anxiety is going to be worse. Oh, I'm so upset. Oh, my kids are always brats today. Oh, my car, it never really starts. Oh, that, that despondency. And for the despondent, every single day brings trouble. But look at the scripture. But for the happy heart, life is a continual feast. For the happy heart, who might have the same day as the despondent person, who might be in the same situation as the despondent person, the happy heart sees the blessings in it. The happy heart has trained the eye to see God's goodness. The happy heart is always searching after seeing God's goodness. You see, if you want to look for bad things in this world, you can find bad things in this world. But if you want to look to see God working, you will see God working. If you have an eye to see God at work, you will see God at work. If you look for the blessings of God, you can see it. Why? For the happy heart, life is a continual feast. It's a continual feast. In fact, everything about my first mentor, her name was Dorothy Dunn. She was 84 at the time. She's now going on to her reward. But one of the number one thing I admired about her was her perspective on life. Because every time I would talk to her, I'd say, how's it going? And she'd say, son, she'd call me son, grandson. She'd say, son, life is good. How's it going? How's it going, Dorothy? Life is good. And for years, honestly, being young, it used to annoy me because I thought, She was saying, you know, that's what she says. But the reality is, that's not what she says. That's what she believes. But see, I didn't even have a framework to know that someone could believe like that. That they could believe life is that good, right? It was was in her heart. She was battling bronchitis for like, you know, four weeks. I remember saying, Miss Dunn, how you doing? Oh, life is good, son. You know, coughing up a lung in the midst of it. I'm like, doesn't sound good. Doesn't sound good, Miss Dunn. No, it is good, son. I promise you it's good. And and I've told you this before. She used to always talk. She was her husband's athlete. She used to talk in baseball language. And and it's one of the ways that she knew how to communicate. So she would say, son, you know, I've had heart issues. I've had a stroke. I'm living in extra innings now, son. I'm living in extra innings. Life is good. And I'm like, I like that. For the happy heart, life is a continual feast. She's in extra innings. She's just grateful to continue to be living. I've got extra time. Life is good. In fact, Solomon, who was the richest man of his time, some people would believe dollar for dollar is the richest man who's ever lived on the planet. This is what he said in Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 9. He said, enjoy what you have. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Enjoy what you have, rather than coveting, desiring what you don't have. You want life to be a continual party? Come on, somebody, optimistic Craig up here. Enjoy what God has given you. 
instead of longing for what you don't have. Be thankful for what God has given you instead of looking at someone's post on Instagram. Oh, I wish I had their life. They're longing for your life in ways you don't even know about. They wish they had your life. You wish they had their life. It's like we just become middle schoolers all over again. That's what social media has done, right? We, we just become desiring of the opposite. Enjoy what you do have, he says, rather than longing for what you don't, don't have. So next time you're tempted to say, well, I hate my stupid car. Instead say, you know what? I thank God I have a car that runs. That puts me in the top 3% of the wealthiest people in the world, by the way. I thank God I had a car that to, get, to get to church this morning. I'm in the top three, 97% of people. More poor, living in poverty beyond me. Next time I, I'm tempted to say, I wish I had a better house. No, I thank God that I got a roof over my head and I got indoor plumbing that works. You kind of laugh, right? But you go to the rest of the world and over half the world, I think it's about 65% of the world does not have indoor plumbing. That's a significant gift from God that we have bathrooms even in this building today, right? We've got indoor plumbing. We are so thankful that we have it. Oh, my life is so crazy. I'm so busy. Life is so crazy, Pastor Craig. I'm so busy. How are you doing? I'm so busy. How are you doing? I'm so busy. My life is so crazy. I'm so busy. No, I'm so thankful. You know what? How I'm doing? I'm so thankful that I got a family and I got children and they're involved in activities and they're excelling in activities and they're healthy and I got a community that I can contribute to and I got friends to hang out with. I thank God that I've got things to do and places to go and people to bless and, and life to speak to. I thank God I've got a significant life that keeps me fruitful doing significant things to be a blessing to other people. That's a whole different world than saying I'm busy. That's altogether different. Some people say, you know what? Well, are we ever a dwelling place going to get to a church where we become too big, Right? Or, or are we going to ever get to a place where we just kind of stick with us four and no more? You know what? You know, or, or, or I've been to that kind of context before and then, you know, I'm really, really hesitant and I understand all those hesitations. Or, 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 you know what? Maybe the music's too loud and the people are too young at this church. I thank God that there are young people in this church excited about being in the house of God when churches are struggling to reach the next generation and our rows are full of young adults that are passionate for the kingdom of God. Or maybe the younger people say, well, I don't necessarily want a church with all all the people that are, and I don't think they see this from my own experience, but there have been some that, with grandparents' age. No, no, no. I thank God that I have people that are able to actually give me stability through seasons of life when I don't know my left from my right. No, no, it's all together. Let me just go off on this just for a moment, by the way, since you got me on the subject. As long as there's one lost person out there called Woodstock, Georgia, our church is never, ever too big. So whatever it takes, if we got to plant more churches, if we got to reach more people over here, as long as there are people who need to grow in Christ-like maturity, we're going to keep manifesting Christ in many ways to many different people. And we're not going to bow down to the demonic curse of envy or comparisons because God is always good and he's never been better to me. And through his son, Jesus, he's been better to all of us than anything you and I could ever imagine. So when my life is good, I thank God for his blessings. And my life is not what I want it to be. I thank God for his goodness, that he's working for all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Therefore, we will kill comparisons. Why? Because it's earthly, unspiritual. It's just demonic. We celebrate the blessings of others. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And we will cultivate gratitude. We will worship our God because he's worthy of our praise. Because we've learned what? The secret of being content, whether living in plenty or living in want. And the secret is I can do all things. Everybody say all things. Through the Son of God, Jesus, who gives me strength. And because he's all I need, I will pursue him with all of my hearts. And in him I will find true joy. And in him I will find true contentment because he is life. And it's his life that truly satisfies. Folks, we live in a world. Again, I told you how much I value social media and how we can leverage it. We live in a world where everyone wants to be a public figure right now. 
We live in a time where people have, who even have an, a private account. What I mean by that is they don't, they don't let anybody follow them who wants to. Like they have to approve it. Even people with private accounts spend their whole lives, and don't get mad at me for saying this, spend their whole lives and commenting and posting stuff to project an image and a reality that might not really be their situation. And Jesus, by the way, had the same temptation. I came across this passage recently, and I thought, you know what? i I got to tuck that away, because not only is it for me, but for the people in our culture. John chapter 7, really fascinating passage. When, when Jesus is being asked to leave Galilee and going up to Judea, where's, where's the place where he'll eventually die? After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, and he didn't want to go in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. I want you to notice how interesting this is. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers, his own brothers, said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, brother, so that your disciples may see the works you do. They might see your miracles. They might put on a public spectacle of your power. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers, here's the nexus, here's the, here's the crux of the whole passage, if you don't get anything. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Go in Judea, show yourself that you see your works. For even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not here for you. Any time will do. Jesus had the same temptation we do. His brothers pull him aside. Just leave that up just for a moment. Pull him aside and say, we got a great idea. Hey, Jesus, let us go show the world who you are. But even Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. That's the crux of the text. And since they did not believe in him, they tried to get him to perform. Anytime you have unbelief in your heart, it will cause you to try to perform to prove something you don't really believe. My God, that is, that is social media right, is that anytime there's unbelief in my heart about what I really truly believe about myself, the temptation next on my doorstep is to try to perform and to do something to prove to everyone else and to myself something I don't really believe in myself. In psychological terms, we call it the fraudulence complex. It's also been called the imposter syndrome. It speaks about how many of us have an inability to internalize our own strengths and our own competencies. And psychologists, again, call it the imposter syndrome because they say many of us feel deep down like we are a fraud. We feel deep down like we are a failure. Many of us secretly deep down feel like we have so little to offer than what people around us expect of us and that even when people compliment us, we can't even hear their compliments because we think when people compliment us, we figure the reason they compliment us is because they don't really see the real us. And if they saw us for the real us, then if they, if they saw, saw me for how stupid I actually feel, if they really saw how nervous I actually am or how I feel, then they would kick us out, right? They would kick us out of the room. It happens to fathers. It happens to mothers. It happens to grandmas. It happens to grandpas. It happens to teenagers, right? It's the, be, it's the fear of being found out to be less than who you really are. And it's in that fear that keeps you in performance mode. It's in that fear that pushes people to perform more. It's that fear that keeps us spending money uh, more and more money to 
look like something important. Why? Because deep down you feel that you're not important, not valuable. It's called the imposter syndrome. It means that sometimes, even though I'm trying to fulfill my purpose in life, I feel like a fake. It's not that I'm a hypocrite. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying this is hypocritical. It's not that I don't feel like a hypocrite or, or that I'm insincere. It's that I am deep down a man. I am a man, but sometimes even as a man, I feel like a boy. It's deep down I'm a preacher, but sometimes I still feel like a sinner. On the inside, I know the worst of my worst. I'm wondering if there's anyone in here today, or maybe I'm living in the wrong culture, that you have been up under the pressure of an expectation. You've been up under the pressure to what? Perform to give some kind of expectation to the people that you think in your life expect a certain thing. Like, I got to prove I'm a good dad. When you feel that kind of pressure, your tendency and temptation is always to prove it. Prove it. Go, go, go to Judea, Jesus. Prove it. But they didn't even believe in him. I got to prove I'm a good man. I got to prove I'm a good preacher. I got to prove it. And when you do it to prove it, God, it takes the joy out of it. Golly, bum, life becomes banal. Really dull. See, Jesus didn't mind doing miracles, did he? He just wouldn't do it for the wrong motives. Jesus is going to Judea. He just wasn't going to go to make a public spectacle of his power. That wasn't why he came. He didn't come to make public spectacles of how awesome he was. Jesus was ultimately, what, determined to go and show the world who he was, but he wasn't going to do it for the gram. I just gave you modern translation. Okay? He wasn't going to do it for the wrong motive. And I think the key thing in the text is it says Jesus said, not now. Everybody say, not now. I'm going to Judea, which is the place I'll give my life eventually, but not now. And it is such a world, weird world we live in. I mean, honestly, I don't even know what to tell my kids. And I have been immersed in youth culture. I don't know what to tell my kids about growing up in a world. Because we've always had the pressure, but now we have the performance. Yes. So all of us as teenagers grew up with the pressures. We don't grow up with the performance anxiety that everybody grows up with now because everyone gets to experience performance anxiety because we all get to perform our lives for one another all the time. I mean, if you cook a good meal for your family, it does not count unless you make an Instagram story about that good meal. It doesn't count. Food tastes worse. Kids won't be thankful. Jesus said, if I go to Judea for the wrong reasons, if I show up with the wrong motives, if I live my life to perform for others rather than to glorify my Father, it will kill me. He said, it will kill me. They'll take my life. And the religious leaders were literally waiting to kill Jesus. But I wonder what things are killing you, are destroying you. It says he purposely stayed away from Judea. What do you need to personally, purposefully stay away from in this season of life? Right? It's a good question. What do you personally need to stop thinking about in this season of your life? What do you personally need to disengage from in this season of life? It's not that it's wrong or it's even a worthy pursuit. But in this season of life, do you need to purposely stay away? What do you need to purposely stop comparing yourself to in this season of life? We put burdens on ourselves when we compare ourselves to people with a different calling. And it will, it will snap you every time. It will eventually break you every time. Some of you, let me say it this way, are hurting in ways you don't have to hurt because you're putting yourself in a position you weren't built to live in. You weren't built to squat that much weight. You see the other person in the gym, it's going to snap your back. 
right? You can't get down in that deep squat like the, the person getting down that deep squat. Don't, don't try to do it like somebody else. Do it like how God called you to do it. Because if not, it's going to snap your spine. It's going to hurt you. It's going to kill you. I live out of my purpose, not my popularity. All I have to do is be obedient in this season of life. Be obedient. So that's the first two things. And the third and final thing that we do, and this is key, is that we're going to speak and type life. Meaning your thumbs on your phone or whatever device you use is an extension of your tongue and how we historically have spoken to people. James chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. I want to read just this text. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That makes me really want to teach a lot, right? (laughs) So, so... I mean, James is saying, God is God, you are not, let your words be few. Right? American culture says, we are God, God is not, let your words be many. Share with everybody you can your opinion. That's what they need, they need your opinion. It'll change the world, your opinion will make everybody change. It'll make them see from your side. No, 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 James says the opposite. This is hard for us, this is sobering. For all of us who make many mistakes... (laughs) I like that. Anyone who makes no mistakes is speaking imperfect. Their speech is perfect. Able to keep the whole body in check with a what? Bridle. But if we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. So James goes on, next verse, look what he says. Or look at ships. Though they're so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set. I mean, it gets worse. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains your whole body. It sets on fire the cycle of nature, and your tongue itself is set on fire by hell. That's what he says. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue. A restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, when you read that, and then you think, that's also now our thumbs. Yeah. Right? The tongue is full of poison. The, the thumb are, is, is destructive. So I thought about, real quick, and this is how I want to end today. I thought about ways in which I've harmed others with what I've said and what I've typed and the ways they've harmed me with what they've said about me. There are words, I started reflecting this week, there's words that you've said that have left people damaged, and broken, and afraid, unsure of themselves, sometimes even unsure of God. And all of us, I know we do. I know all of us want to be the kind of person. We want to be the kind of people that speaks life and not death. So my question is, what do we do? And then it hit me. It hit me. It hit me out of nowhere. Okay, no one can tame the tongue. And then God became no one so that he could tame the tongue. That's what happens in Jesus Christ. God becomes a nobody precisely so he can reframe human nature. Because Jesus, first and foremost, theologically, he is the speech of God, and then he humanly speaks the word of God. He becomes a nobody. What does Philippians say? He emptied himself of divine privilege. He becomes a nobody, and becoming a nobody, he frames and tames the tongue. That's the one who's now alive in us. The one who is the tongue tamer now lives in us. God is a God who speaks. God said in Genesis 
let it be, and it was, right? He spoke, and creation came to pass. In fact, we could say, are you ready? God's entire life is a conversation. His entire life is speech. There is the Father who speaks, there is the Son who has spoken, and there is the Holy Spirit who is the outcome of their speech. The entire life of God is a conversation. And God is calling us, come on church, this is good news if we hear it that way. He's calling us to speak and be like the Holy Spirit in bringing goodness and peace and love to other people. Even the people who follow us on social media, we're to bring peace and goodness and love and not fear and anxiety and worry and detriment to the people that are around us. No, he is the nobody who tames our tongues. We have to learn, listen, church, to speak by faith and not from our own nature. We have to speak by faith and not from our own instinct. We have to stop being people of advice and start being people of the Word of God. We have to do that. We have to do that. We have to be people who learn not to say what we are thinking, but to say what God is saying. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together said, the greatest gift we can offer each other as Christians is to not say what we think. Right? That's the greatest offer we, see, we offer one another. Meaning, we do that by recognizing what God's life is like and what God's life is like. His life is a conversation. Every word God speaks, he opens up for the next person to speak. It, this is how you know your life is characterized in speech by the character of God. When you speak, you speak in such a way that it opens up the table for the next person to speak. If you're speaking in a way that closes the opportunities for other people to speak, that is not the nature of God. The nature of God is my speech is one that doesn't say, hey, not here to talk, not here to argue, not whatever. It, the, the speech of God is one in which we speak the word of God and open up the table for the next person to speak. That's what characterizes faithful speech. So he says in 2 Corinthians 1, 18, 19, and 20 that every promise of God is yes in Christ. The Son of God is always yes. He says even in our speech, every word God says is a yes to who we are. Even when God says no, his no is just a form of a yes to who he's made us to be. When he says no to sin, why? He's simply saying yes to who he's called us to be. When he says no to adultery... It's because he's saying yes to the good of marriage. When he says no to greed, it's because he's saying yes to the gift of generosity. Even his no is nothing but a yes to what he means for us. That's what Jesus is. So Paul's so deeply affected by this. I gotta read this last scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter four. This is how how Paul says it. He says, but just as we have, watch this, the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with scripture, I believed, so I spoke. I believe, so I spoke. We also believe and we speak. I want to stop right there and say this is the difference between advice and counsel. Advice and opinion is I thought, so I said. I thought, so I said. God's counsel is I believed, so I speak. So when we we speak, we speak not from our own thoughts, not from my own wisdom, but I speak from my trust in the wisdom of God. And if you're unsure of what you're speaking from, just don't speak. That's what I tell people. If you don't know if it's coming from your own thoughts or coming from the wisdom of God, just don't speak. Just don't talk. Just don't say anything. And when it comes time to speak, conversely, when it really comes time because you believe what God has said, then say it boldly and, and say what God is saying. So he says in verse 14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake. Paul is battling them because they said your yes is not your yes Paul and you told us you were going to come to us and now you're not coming to us and your no is your yes and he is he is arguing with them and saying no you know what you've rejected me but I'm not going to speak from my own hurt or anger I'm not even going to respond that way you know how he responds he says everything's for your sake and this is the outcome folks you want to know the outcome of your social media 
Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Faithful speech of the people of God is we need to understand the outcome of speaking the counsel of God is that grace extends more and more. When we speak the counsel of God, grace is like an infectious disease that infects everybody who follows us. That our speech, marked by the faithfulness of God, is we infect someone with that grace, and that is catchable, y'all. That is highly transmissible. And every Every time you speak a word of grace, they become graced in a way that will somehow impact the people that they grace with their words. And every kind word you say on your Facebook, every kind word you say on your Instagram that is spoken in the Holy Spirit of God, you cannot imagine the kind of grace it spreads to people around you. It's every week I'm getting someone private message me, someone on Facebook, and they'll say, hey, I've been following this, or I appreciate what this said because this helped me. And we had a conversation. That's what our speech is supposed to do. It's supposed to extend grace to people. See, when we speak from opinion, we speak from our flesh. All of our words start with if, then. If you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, then this will happen. If you will be this for me, then I'll be this for you. Our speech is always conditioned by our limits. But when we speak God's speech, it's not conditioned by our limits. So God doesn't say if, then. Next slide. This is how God says, and I'm going to come to him. God doesn't say if, then. God says because, therefore. So can I give you three things that we can say to people? Faithful speech is because God is God, you are, and then we name their identity. Because God is God, you are loved. Because God is God, you are the beloved of God. Because God is God, you are secure. Because God is God, you are embraced. Because God is God, you are embraced in the love God has for himself. Can you imagine what we would infect our world with, our screens with, with this kind of faithful speech? Because God is God, you are dear to me. So you speak their identity. Everybody say identity. identity. Then you speak to their purpose. So because God is God, you will. And then because God is God, we speak to their purpose. We not only name their identity, we direct them towards their purpose. You ready? Because God is God, you will possess all he intends for you. you. Because God is God, you will receive all good from his hand. Because God is God, he will shower you with benefits. Because God is God, you will accomplish all he has for you. Not because you are you, but because God is God and God is in you and because in God you are made new. God has affirmed your purpose. We say not only who you are, not only what you will do, that's their purpose, but then the third thing is we speak in ways that encourage. So here's our speech. Because God is God, you are beautiful. Because God is God, you are forgiven. Because God is God, you are trusted. Because God is God, come on church, you are welcome. Isn't this what people long to hear? Because God is God, you will do everything he's put in your heart to do. Because God is God, you will see victory in your life. Because God is God, you can do all things in him who gives you strength. Because God is God, you can resist the temptations you're facing today. Because God is God, you can do everything you're called to do. And what should mark our speech is you are, you will, and you can. You are, you will, and you can. You are, not you are not, not you can't, not you will not, but you are, you will, and you can. That should mark our speech as the people of God. And the root of our confidence in other people is not our experience of other people. It's our knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. I don't speak to people words of hope in this church because I trust their character. I speak to them words of hope because I trust his character. And I trust that he who is in them is greater than what they face. Think about what could happen if we stop looking to people in their experience to speak to them and their future and we start speaking to them based on what God is doing, who God is, and what He can do in their future. That makes all the difference in the world. 
makes all the difference in the world. So we're going to kill comparisons. We're going to cultivate goodness. And we're going to type and speak life. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.